0: i uh-huh. uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Arthur Dent from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest, John Dorowski. Welcome back, John. Thank you. Glad to have you on again. And we are discussing the novel, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was published in 1979 and written by Douglas Adams. And it's kind of important to distinguish what Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text we're talking about, because this uh, I, I guess uh, pop culture property has a very unexpected history when you start to dig into it and there, there's been lots of uh, twists and turns Into, in, in terms of I, I think when uh, you know that there's a book version of something that there's also like TV and film versions you assume the book came first and that is not the case for Hitchhiker's Guide to the, Guide to the Galaxy
1: and we should also note that uh, we are Discussing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because it is the 42nd anniversary of the series.
0: Yes, a uh, very important <laughs> for for the seri- for for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Very important anniversary for almost any other property. 42 would not be something to celebrate. John, do you remember when you first became aware of Douglas Adams's? uh, Or that's always a hard one to do, Possessive. Oh, (laughs) oh, the trouble. Uh, But his uh, story, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy?
1: Um, I became aware of it, I'm pretty sure, in high school. uh, But I did not read it. I I hadn't been exposed to a lot of British comedy at that point, so I wasn't sure if it was something that was really going to interest me. Uh, But the movie that came out in 2005 – uh, I went and saw that, and I enjoyed it, and that's so it made me say, "Oh, I should go read all the books now," <laughs> which I did.
0: It's um... I, I
1: know I know the film isn't uh, among the fans of Hitchhikers isn't well respected, but it was my introduction, and it worked. It got me into the series,
0: and uh, I I remember very much enjoying that uh, that that film adaptation. I know I had some friends who were into. British sci fi and fantasy in junior high that I can remember. Yeah,
1: well, it was around that time that uh, Red Dwarf was on our PBS station.
0: Right. And I remember some friends who were uh, like into Terry Pratchett. Um, Yeah, Terry
1: Pratchett and Red Dwarf. And I just wasn't into that at that point.
0: Yeah. And um, I, I didn't read it at the time, but that's where I remember first hearing the title, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and them just. Praising it uh, and saying it was it was the best thing, and so I was I was aware of it as a property, but I don't think I ever read it until like you after seeing that uh, that film from 2005? Yes, yeah, the two thousand five film with um, uh, Mart- Martin Freeman, Martin Freeman in the role of Arthur and- Dent, which really I mean, just right there when you know <laughs> <laughs> the, the character of Arthur Dent is supposed to be kind of like your quintessential every man but British. Like well, it's Martin Freeman. Like that's (laughs) that's
1: well, it's uh, who needs to be cast in this role. Well, it's the interesting thing is that uh, when that film was made, none of these people were stars. But it's Martin Freeman, Sam Rockwell, Zoe Deschanel. And I forget who played Ford prefect,
0: but that well, he was a, but, a star, but then you, you, when you know that there's a depressive robot and it is voiced oh, by, uh, yes. Uh, Alan Alan Rickman, Rickman. It's also like, once again, it's, it's kind of like, well, it's like when they said they were making an X-Men movie, I was like, well, we're going to count Patrick Stewart as professor X, right? We, there's yeah. no one else for this role. When you have a depressive robot that's going to mope around a spaceship and just have a, a voice that drives everyone crazy, it's like that's going to be Alan Rickman, right? We we all know this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Played on set by Warwick Davis.
0: Oh, okay. I did not so know that.
1: It's like uh, you look at it. It's like they had all these future stars in this film. This was one of those uh, like early 2000 keystones to the next decade. <laughs>
0: Right, but one of those. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like when you look at the cast of The Outsiders. It's like, how were all these people in the same film? And or, it's, like, um, it's like, well, they weren't. They weren't them yet. It, it was just a cast.
1: Uh, the Scott Pilgrim movie. Mm-hmm. There's like all these young and up and coming stars, and they've become stars. Yeah, <laughs> they, like they delivered on that promise. <laughs> uh,
0: well, John, you went ahead and pulled up some trivia about uh, about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Do you want to share that with us?
1: Certainly. So as Joe mentioned, this is a bit more convoluted history than you might expect. Uh, Because when you have a book, you assume that's where it begins. And no, this began as a radio play, uh, first broadcast in 1978, and uh, with six episodes and a second six-episode series in 1980. Uh, Adams began this with a proposal called The Ends of the Earth, six self-contained episodes all ending with Earth being destroyed in a different way. But while writing the first episode, Adams realized he, he needed someone on the planet who was an alien to provide some context and that that this alien needed a reason to be on earth. Uh, Adams finally settled on making the alien, a roving researcher researcher for a wholly remarkable book named the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. Uh, and as Adams progressed in writing the series, the guide became more and more central and he decided to focus on that and uh, move the destruction of the earth to just a, One part of the series. Uh, Around the same time, Adams was also working as a writer and script editor for Doctor Who, and some of his Doctor Who ideas would work their way their way into future Hitchhiker stories as well as his Dirk Gently series. Uh, The two radio series became the basis for the first two novels, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Adams wrote three more books in the series: The Life, the Universe, and Everything, So Long, and Thanks for All the Fish. And mostly harmless, as well as the short story "Young Zephod plays it safe. Uh, all of which create a trilogy in five parts. <laughs> That's right.
0: At one point, isn't it uh, referred to as like the increasingly misnamed trilogy? <laughs> or yeah, like
1: there that. were that was a whole subset of uh, facts that I found of yeah. how it's been labeled throughout. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to go too much into that mm-hmm. uh, before his uh, death in two thousand one. Adams considered writing a sixth book, had mentioned somebody as mostly that uh, the fifth book ends with all the cast separated and he wanted to bring them back together. Uh, No real development happened uh, before his death. And Ian Colfer, who wrote the Artemis Fowl series, uh, or that's what he's most famous for. He was uh, brought on by the estate to write a sixth one and another thing in 2008.
0: Meaning, and another thing is the title of the six yes. one, not that he wrote the six one and then something else as well.
1: <laughs> no, the <laughs> title is, and another thing, right? Uh, all of the later books have been adapted into radio plays. There've also been stage versions, a television show in 1981 and Hulu has announced that they are, will do a new TV adaptation and scheduled for 2021. No further news on that. And don't know if that date is still set. <laughs> Uh, there was the 2005 film, a text-based video game in 1984. Oh, that's how cutting edge of
0: technology. The, yeah,
1: yeah, that's how popular the series was. It was adapted into a video game in the 80s. <laughs> uh, and then DC Comics also published some comic book adaptation in the mid-90s.
0: Now, I learned some trivia about this. I think it was from a recent Judge John Hodgman episode where he, for some reason, went on a tangent about The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe, which is was a book in the Uh, um, I want to say late '60s. Uh, that was literally a a guide for hitchhiking around Europe that Douglas Adams used to hitchhike around Europe, and the title of that book became the inspiration for this. And because of the popularity of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the uh night late '60s Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe is a very
1: valuable book
0: to own and has a very um high price on secondary book markets uh, because it helped to inspire the title for this series.
1: good for them (laughs) hopefully the authors get some royalties from that
0: (laughs) well in the secondary book market I don't believe they do (laughs) um before we get to the summary for uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, we want to thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode, and we want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, or if you'd be willing to at all, even if you don't want to, but you're willing, uh, we would invite you to go to patreon.com slash and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter monthly episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming lately. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss.
1: And as they say on iFanboy all the time, eccentric millionaires are welcome to donate oh, yeah, as yeah, much yeah. as they want. If you want to use this as a tax haven, go right ahead.
0: The $1 and $5 levels are not the top that is allowed. You are welcome to shoot right past $5 and uh and, and hit some higher levels. And we would we would not be upset if that ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to give a summary of this And I'm focusing on the plot The reason this series is so famous Is a lot of the absurd humor And I am not going to try and summarize the humor We can circle back and talk about some of our favorite moments moments uh, That come from it uh, uh, in, in terms of some of the comedy But I'm just going to do the quick bare bones plot And then we can talk about some other aspects of this in our discussion. So Arthur Dent is a very average native of Earth, and he's having a bad day because his house is going to be demolished to make way for a road bypass. His friend, Ford Prefect, is actually an alien who has been researching Earth to and entry in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but he's been stuck on Earth for years now. An alien group called the Vogon announced they are here to destroy the Earth to make way for a hyperspatial express route, and Ford grabs Arthur, and they hitchhike onto the Vogon's ship seconds before the planet is destroyed. Zeph is it Zaphod or Zaphod? I've heard it both ways. Zephod Beeble Bronx, is the president of the galaxy, and he and his human friend, Trillian Yes, I said human friend, wait for it. Uh steal a spaceship called the Heart of Gold that is powered by an infinite improbability drive. Uh Ford, uh so now we're jumping back to uh Arthur Ford, uh or sorry, uh Ford Prefect and, and Arthur Dent. Uh Ford gives Arthur a uh Babelfish, which will translate any language in um in in the galaxy. But now we should great... say oh, it's a literal fish. Yeah, and it goes into his ear, swims into his <laughs> ear, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is not gonna be great use to them because they're both shoved out into space by the captain of the ship that they have hitched a ride on. Improbably, the Heart of Gold arrives and it saves Ford and Arthur from the vacuum of space. They meet Zafrod, his depressed robot Marvin, and Trillian, who, improbably, is a human girl Arthur tried to hit on unsuccessfully at a party. This new group heads to, uh, I, how do you pronounce the name of this planet, John? Is it Magrathea? Magrathea. Magrathea. Okay. Heads to Magrathea, a planet uh, that made planets well, for the, rich species the, of the galaxy. The people on the, the planet. The people on the planet. planet so, yeah. Well, <laughs> the planet that make more planets. Yeah. Well, the planet uh, was populated by these engineers who would make planets for the wealthy species of the galaxy. So. so
1: a planet that makes more planets sounds like a story idea that could be used somewhere.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Magrathea or Magrathea had been thought lost, but infinite improbability drive. So they find it. Uh, when they reach the planet, Arthur's left on the surface while the others go exploring. A native of Magrathea meets up with Arthur and reveals the truth. Earth was built by Magrathea, and it was a gigantic computer meant to reveal the meaning of life. Well, okay, actually they know the meaning of life. That is 42. They just don't know what question to ask that makes 42 significant as the meaning of life. So they they previously built a gigantic computer that ran all its processes forever and revealed the answer to the meaning of life was 42. So now the Earth computer was meant to reveal the question that is going to reveal the significance of 42. But Earth was destroyed shortly before the calculations were completed. Literally... Minutes. <laughs> yes. Millennia of work cut off right there <laughs> by the uh, the Vogons. The Magrathian wants to chop up Arthur's brain since he was on Earth near the end, so that might reveal the answer. But Arthur and his friends are able to escape and Beeplebrox announces plans to go find a restaurant to get a bite to eat. Mm-hmm. The end.
1: Was it uh, a Magrathian who wanted to chop up Arthur? Was it the aliens who are projected as mice in our universe?
0: Oh, you know what? I may have goofed on the summary there. And I actually listened to the audiobook version of this about three weeks ago, because there was a chance we were going to record then, and I don't remember the detail there. So let me... (laughs) I can do a quick check. Uh, Well, John, uh, why don't you tell us why you think this novel is great while I do a quick check on that bit at the end.
1: Well, what sets this apart from a lot of the other science fiction at the time was you had a truly average person in Arthur Dent. A lot of science fiction knows more that, well, you have the space opera style where you have someone who may seem normal but has this great destiny and are going to become a very powerful person. Or uh, you have the more hard science fiction where the people choose to go out to space to explore. And so they have trained for it. But Arthur is utterly average in every single way and he acts or or more he reacts as most of us probably would in these situations of what is all this stuff uh asking questions being completely overwhelmed uh, not contributing to the action very much uh because he doesn't understand what's going on he just can kind of sit and watch that's all he can do is try and keep up with what's happening and that's uh part of what makes it special is that we have this For a main character who is our observer, our access Mm -hmm. point to the story, but is truly acting in ways that most of us probably would if we were in that situation.
0: Yeah. And I think there's, um, I can, th- I can think of some examples of other storytelling where like your main character is supposed to be like the average, the average person, but then you learn they're not, they're really like of a great bloodline or, uh, there's a prophecy about them or they're fulfilling some destiny. And for Arthur, that's not, none of that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, yes. Arthur Dent is not King Arthur. Yes. the stable boy who becomes King, uh, and you know you have your Star Wars as the quintessential space opera, of this mm-hmm. where these seemingly normal people stuck on backwater planets end up shaping the destiny of your the galaxy. Right. They're, they're
0: either the, the, the son of uh, you know the big bad or the granddaughter of a big bad uh may yes <laughs> as as may happen uh in that so john i've gone and double checked on uh, the hitchhikers guide to the galaxy wiki uh so the the hitchhikersfandom.com and it was indeed the mice who were the species so so what we call mice uh are like physical manifestations of the species that had paid the uh the the people on uh what was the uh, magraphia uh to to make the planet earth as a computer that was going to compute the answer and so some of these mice are are here uh and are the ones that want to cut up open arthur's head to discover the question that leads to the answer 42
1: yes and that's uh when we talk about like often the your protagonist or your hero has this great destiny put before them that they have to uh Either reluctantly or willingly accept um this gets into uh more of those questions about religion, like what why was earth created, why are we here and it turns out that for Douglas Adams, at least you know it doesn't matter why we're here, like yes, we have purpose, but our purpose isn't about us uh being here on earth uh so it's a bit. Uh, A bit of deism and existentialism existentialism mixed together. Well, Uh,
0: while we're mentioning some isms, I want to just talk about how postmodern this all felt. Yeah. Where there is um, kind of a deep sadness, I think, that permeates so many of these characters about their role in life and the, the the state they find themselves in the universe and there's a lot of criticism uh like uh, about both earth life and and then the ideas of galactic life but it's also completely painted over with this coding of humorous absurdism that feels uh you know that 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 mix to me is a really key element of uh of postmodernism which writing this in the 70s it would have been like a real heyday for for what we mean when we talk about postmodernism.
1: So you want to just cut right to the character that represents this idea in Marvin? <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> well, he doesn't. He doesn't so much have the the, the painting of of uh, absurdity, uh, humorous absurdity over the top of it. It just he just is the sad. <laughs> so well, no, sad.
1: That it's that he is a sad robot is absurd. Right. Yes. There's that. And so you know when we think about robots in science fiction, you. think you would either have the data type where they have all this knowledge, but no emotions, uh, or you have someone like C-3PO, uh, who can react, but is, uh, you know, very, uh, sorry. Someone like C-3PO who has more wide ranging expressions, not necessarily emotions, but expressions. Uh, but here you have really one of the great creations of the series, a truly depressed robot.
0: <laughs> well, I like in listening to things like uh, you know Star Wars minute. They they often like wonder like who programs C three PO to have all these emotions.
1: <laughs> like if or, he was or really... That robots can feel pain.
0: <laughs> yes, in, in Return of the Jedi, we see that. And it's kind of like an odd, odd moment that I think has haunted many many people as they think about like who who programmed them to be this way. And with um, uh, Marvin, it's you know that same question is very present.
1: Well, that in this case he was designed to feel emotions. He was part of the—I forget the specific, specific name—but that they wanted robots to have personalities. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first line, which Marvin was part of, all were depressed, and then they <laughs> changed it so that they had to be happy. <laughs> right. And so the the ship, the heart of Gold, has a computer programming running it that is very happy all the time. <laughs> right.
0: Um, but there, I I, I think many of our other characters are also going to be uh you know similarly like vexed in negative ways but then we we kind of forget about it because the story in its presentation doesn't feel sad to us so obviously there's arthur and trillian like their planet just blew up like they're all princess leia <laughs> having seen Alderaan <laughs> blow up in star wars uh and like arthur begins the book like so frustrated by human bureaucracy and the uh the twists and turns that make his life feel insignificant as uh the government has declared that his home is going to be destroyed to to put in a road uh and he's trying to fight this but they've made right. it so impossible by jumping through the hoops uh the hoops of bureaucracy of to do what he's supposed to do it's almost impossible and then the entire earth gets wiped out in the same way so it's, it's like we are invited to find parallels between the absurdity of the galaxy that we're about to be revealed to uh with the parallels of the earth that Arthur just left behind.
1: Well, also that in science fiction, you're so used to, once you got into space, you encounter these grand empires or these higher cultures. And the first thing we meet is no, it's just bureaucracy, just like on earth.
0: Yes, exactly. Um,
1: And and also that uh, it wasn't just that these, he was trying to jump through hoops to stop this road being built. But when he asks him, you know, why do you have to tear down my house to build a road? Because roads have to be built. <laughs> There's this circular logic of we do this because it has to be done.
0: Right. And it's just highlighting like his uh, insignificance in the eyes of the process right? Yeah. The, the happening and all of humanity is about to um, be made to feel very insignificant in <laughs> the galactic process. Uh, so, like for Arthur, they're uh, when he's trying to save his home. They're like, "Well, we we posted the plans publicly. You you should have known about this." And it's almost impossible to go find where the plans had been posted. But they, you know, bureaucratically were required to go post that there were plans to put the road there. And then they find out that uh, the Vogons had posted the plans that Earth was going to be destroyed to make way for the galactic bypass. Uh, but they posted—is it, so, it by Jupiter or somewhere like
1: that? I believe it was actually Alpha Centauri.
0: Oh, oh, Alpha Centauri is where where the humans were supposed to have to go find out this information so they could prepare themselves um and and so you know Arthur and Trillian have that sadness uh that that's weighing them down and then Ford is like just the side of depressive when he's down on earth <laughs> Um, because he's been stuck for so long, uh, trying to write the entry on earth, which he knows is going to be edited down to mostly harm- harmless. That's like all his work of decade, you know, decade which, of being on earth. Is- which is
1: the upgrade from the previous entry of harmless.
0: Yes. Yeah. The, all the, <laughs> the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Office said about earth before was harmless. He's been researching it and he knows the editors are going to turn it into just mostly harmless.
1: Yeah. Uh, but, uh, Ford serves that important purpose as our source of information and the for Arthur. So you have your Sherlock Holmes and Watson dynamic of you have a person who knows everything and a person who asks the qu- asks the questions.
0: Well and it's it's the classic um, you know hero's journey the mentor that's going to take you into the unknown world. That's what Ford is to Arthur. Now, we've said Arthur isn't like your traditional Uh, protagonist of the hero's journey, but the story is still going to follow a lot of those beats of a call to action uh, mentor that helps you across the threshold, entering the unknown world, gathering a fellowship of friends along the way, uh, gathering tools that are going to help you to function there in terms of the Babelfish and the, the the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So we get a lot of those beats. We just don't have necessarily the big heroic moment where everything gets set right through Arthur's will and choices.
1: Yeah. They're not, He's not on a quest for something. He's just trying to get by. And continuing that kind of postmodernism where they twist all these elements, uh, Ford Prefect becomes not just the mentor, but the exasperated mentor who gets tired of answering questions. And just kind of <laughs> says, you know, come on, keep up with what's going on. You should just know this stuff.
0: Yeah, everyone knows this. And Arthur's like, I, I don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you have any favorite moments of absurd humor that stand out uh, from from this book? Because I think that's one reason why it is so beloved is that amidst all that sadness and depression that we've kind of already identified, it is laugh out loud funny. Uh, both turns of fra- phrase, but then also like narrative twists that happen.
1: Uh, yeah, the, and part of the structure of the book is uh, that The Hitchhiker's Guide is kind of an omniscient narrator through the story and so you often cut to the book explaining something
0: but with with, um, biting commentary happening
1: (laughs) Uh, well that's because uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide is not an encyclopedia it is encyclopedic Mm -hmm. but it is meant to be easily accessible and crowdsourced in its writing so this was really Wikipedia being invented in 78 (laughs) uh Now Wikipedia does have standards where they won't allow these biting asides, unfortunately, (laughs) but, um, that, that's the idea of it is it's really was Wikipedia. And so, yeah, it is. uh, The writers aren't just reporting facts. They're providing their commentary and, and interpreting these cultures based on their experiences. And so you get, uh, all these asides, which works very well in radio, uh, to have someone come in and explain this, uh, with all this knowledge, but uh, among all the absurdity of that and some of the things they encounter, I think the improbability drive is great. That idea that uh, they travel through all possible, uh, all possibilities before arriving back. And usually something has changed and they're in the world and particularly in the ship uh, because of that. But it's when they get to Magrathea and Magrathia def- automated defense launches missiles on them and so uh, Arthur just pushes the improbability drive and the missiles turn into a plant and a whale <laughs> that then crash to the earth or sorry not the earth the ground
0: yes yeah, to, to
1: <laughs> yes and so they they have this long monologue from the whale who's like a like Oh, I, I've just come into existence. What is all these experiences? You know, I'm rushing through something is, you know, air. And what's that beneath me? It's round and ha- hard. What what would be a good word for that? Ground. <laughs> and then the, the pot of platin goes, not again. <laughs> and the the commentary from the book is philosophers think that if we knew what that meant, we'd understand a lot more about the universe. And uh, Adams does come back to that. It explains why the planet says that. Oh, okay. That's uh, one of the later books.
0: Right. Um, I think the infinite improbability drive is just such a brilliant way to do all the hand-waving that can be so frustrating for oh, the, galactic and storytelling. The, the, uh, like, the, like travel and, and everything that has to happen on a galactic scale. You just say there's an infinite improbability drive and you can hand-wave whatever you need to.
1: Well, then the, they go into the detail of how they created the improbability drive which is the most hand-wavy thing ever which was like well if uh if it's possible for us to create this then we just have to uh say like it, that it's improbable and therefore it can that's created it's like just wave away of how they made this
0: and i i think that the uh there's the tone of this the story that makes that kind of delightful instead of feeling like the author is like ducking the issue um you just kind of get some joy out of how uh douglas adams has chosen to deal with some of the most frustrating aspects of of um of science fiction <laughs> and yeah. uh you know just just do away with it but then you also like at the same time he's doing away with it he makes it so core to the story that you know every everything that is going to you know, every, every time their you know their death is stopped at the last second, it's always going to be because of the, the infinite probability drive, which somehow doesn't feel like stakes are being removed because the story doesn't isn't about stakes. Like you, you never are really worried for Arthur's well-being as, as you go through, and I'm not sure why. Uh, maybe it's just the overall tone of uh, whimsy that I, I, I think is is overlaying it that um, it allows it to not feel like a cheat to have this device within the story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I do also want to show out a uh, shout out uh, for, in terms of like absurd comedy, the uh, so long and thanks for all the fish moment <laughs> where right before earth is destroyed, we discover the dolphins leaving and saying so long and thanks for all the fish.
1: The dolphins, the second smartest pe- species on earth with humanity as the third. <laughs>
0: Right, which is baffling to to uh, Arthur for a while until we discover that lab lab rats or lab mice are actually these you know uh, physical manifestations of the smartest species because they are the ones that requested the Earth be built. Yeah. Um, uh, what, in in talking about kind of the uh, you know the the sense of whimsy or the or the fun that overlays a lot of this, what do you think is being satirized? Because this is definitely a satirical novel. So, what exactly is being kind of poked at in this this story
1: Um, well partly it depends on the moment I mean you have poking fun at bureaucracy Uh, you have the story of how Zephod became president that pokes fun at politics and we haven't really talked about Zephod uh, who is a two headed three armed alien who uh, I don't it's not quite hippie but that's the, the direction for the character.
0: I think a lot of the performances of the character end up, you know, drawing on that stereotype.
1: Yeah. Um, very, very uh, not worrying about the consequences of his actions. Uh, just kind of does uh, very impulsive about his choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then so he kind of says, says to himself one day, I want to be president of the, of the galaxy. And so he just goes and does it. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: philosophy is definitely satirized, particularly when we get like the backstory. Of oh, uh, religion. The, yeah. Philosophy and religion uh, is uh, <laughs> academia uh, definitely is is getting it. So, so it's not as though uh, Douglas Adams is just saying, oh, religion is ridiculous. He's kind of saying like, you, you know what? A lot of our alternatives to religion are, also have some ridiculousness about them.
1: Yeah. So he's taking like a lot of the institutions that structure society, mm-hmm. uh, and saying, yeah, like, you know, we've built them up as important, but are they really?
0: Yeah. So, so, I mean, when you talk about as institutions, we already mentioned at this point, you know, government, uh, academic institutions, religious institutions, um, oh, let's see, what else do we, I, I, the, um, I, I sense it's coming. Oh, some e- of economics. A, yeah. Yeah. Commerce. Uh, I, I think that's more maybe later in the series than in this one. Right? Well, the,
1: you have the whole situation with Magrathia. Oh, where right. They, uh, <laughs> they made all these plants and then they said, what well, said, well, there's a recession coming. So let's just freeze ourselves for a few million years. And then when we come out, right. the recession will be guarded. We'll, the people will pay us to build plants again.
0: Yeah. There's definitely some, both uh, in terms of production, but also like the one percenters who are buying these planets. Uh, yeah. There's, there's definitely some commentary on that for sure. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so this is, uh, was in 78. Um, don't know enough about British politics to know specific references they might be making. Uh, like if this was, I think Thatcher was a little bit later. Um. But like there could be some very specific British cultural stuff from the seventies that he's referencing that we're just not going to get. And that's we're- part of what makes this not uh this work so special is that uh you could have the those references, but it works without it. You don't need that specificity. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Uh. Yeah. There's there's things that are definitely funny, even if you don't know the exact whatever inspired uh, Adams' uh, satire. I I think the idea of satirizing government, and satirizing religious institutions, and satirizing educational institutions like that that still works. You know, <laughs> decades on.
1: Somehow we're still making fun of those things.
0: Well, and also science, I think, gets satirized in this, right? Um, like uh, in in some ways, like there's just constant uh like like the sci whatever representative of science we have in this is kind of asking the wrong question or struggling to find and that also gets layered in with philosophy uh, uh yeah clearly um but but also like having the wrong answer but then acting with full confidence on that wrong act uh answer so so i think or science is also... having
1: the answer but not the question right and answer yeah acting in full confidence <laughs> um well and also the the satirization of science fiction in general where it's irreverent to all these concepts so that are core to the genre
0: yes I, I and some of that is just the simple inversion like we said instead of a chosen one you, you uh you know like um, uh, what's his name in dune or as, as i mean this is predating luke skywalker and star wars but yeah the, the idea of the chosen one in science fiction was very much uh present from the early days like even from of John carter mars um you know uh, those kinds of ideas. To now, we're going to invert that to an everyman, but also the idea in science fiction. Who of, is
1: really an everyman? Oh yeah, it's not that. Not that uh, we say he's an everyman who's relatable, but then they, you know, no, he actually has some skills, or he has this des- destiny that his everymanness will help him accomplish that destiny. Now this is an average guy thrust into a, a wholly unique situation. And reacting like an average guy.
0: <laughs> you also get the inversion of like the, the great triumph. Uh, whereas like these characters are all just failing left and right. <laughs> like in Almost everything yeah. they do uh, like, like failure is, is going to dog them, uh, which is where a lot of the comedy is going to result from uh, because, you know, seeing, seeing people fail is, is a long standing source of comedy. Um, but uh, in in science fiction, it's you know us versus the galaxy, and and you know your small band of us is that you're following uh, as the protagonists of your story are almost always going to win. And like this ends with them like barely escaping their lives and like not really having answered anything and saying, "Look, where can we go get a bite to eat?" And someone's saying, "Like, well, there's a restaurant at the edge of the galaxy,
1: <laughs> or at the end of the universe, or at the universe." Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing is like the stakes, like you said, they're they're constantly escaping life and death, but that's not what's at stake. It's not about that. And that's part of why you said like it never feels like they're really under danger of dying uh, because uh, that's not what it's about. It's not about how do we escape this next situation. It's about what the situation is and how ridiculous that situation is. Yeah, and
0: there's uh, ridiculousness just dripping off every every – Every event that happens in this book, from the Vogons' poetry. So when they've hitchhiked onto the Vogon ship, uh, the captain, before jettisoning them into space, like uh, announce or reads some of his poetry, and uh, Arthur, in a, in a bid to like please the captain, like uh, gives the most hokey pseudo intellectual praise for the poetry and trying to analyze it, and then the Vogon captain just still launches them out into space. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything else that stands out for you in terms of like the, uh, the absurdity or, or the wit, uh, that Adams is giving us throughout this.
1: I had something, I can't remember it right now. So you talk for a little bit, I'll come back.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, I, I think in some ways, one thing that is interesting about this is that, um, it's, science fiction but it also leans so hard into the comedy which science fiction is usually more associated with the drama and i I think it's a very successful blend of those two uh when when we think about like if you're in the in the in the bookstore at the science fiction section i think you're usually gonna be expecting uh romantic adventure uh and and the uh leaning into the drama with occasional moments of comedy that are going to shine through in highlighting the comedy. Uh, you're able to get all the the satire that we've uh, discussed in some depth here. Uh, but, but it also just changes the whole tone of what science fiction can be. And it doesn't feel out of place to have a comedic science fiction. Uh, it, it completely works to do it.
1: Yeah. I think that comes out of Douglas's work with Dr. Who, which uh, a science fiction show and when he was working on it, it, was had some very dramatic stuff. But the Doctor is kind of a humorous, char- a humorous character. And so you have uh, a kind of serious science fiction stuff with humor. And this is just inverting that where it's really a humor story with some science fiction.
0: Yeah, and, and very loose science fiction, as we've said. Uh where we're gonna well, be exploring yeah, you know, some Dr. of the tropes. Doctor uh, Who's
1: not exactly known for its hard science. Yeah, yeah. Uh
0: you're gonna have your space travel, you're gonna have your robots, you're gonna have your aliens, uh, but like not really any explanations for why the aliens like evolved the way they did or how the space travel really is working. Like that's
1: all or, and none of the none of the aliens are malicious. Mm-hmm. Uh you don't have a Dalek or a Borg here where they're trying to conquer the universe. Uh, they not they're not setting out to be evil. They just do things that can be interpreted as evil, like destroying the earth.
0: Right, but it's not as you said. It's not born out of maliciousness. It's just they're just doing their job. <laughs> they're yeah. they're uh you know they're they're cogs in this machine uh, that is going to chew up the earth in a moment. But they're not doing it to be evil. It's just they're cogs in the machine.
1: Yeah. All right, I remembered what I wanted to say. <laughs> um, one of the things I've uh, read and listened to an audio version. Uh, Stephen Fry does an excellent audio book. Just in general, he does an excellent audio book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also does a reading of *Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy*. And listening to this time, uh, and talking about you talking about how the characters are all have these kind of depressive elements to them. I, one of the passages that really struck me listening this time in preparation was when Arthur was trying to comprehend the destruction of the earth. Uh, You know, he had been so busy uh, escaping from earth and then the Vogons, he hadn't had time to contemplate it and accept it. And uh, they have this passage where he's pausing and just trying to think, uh, you know, the earth's destroyed. How do I feel about that? And he's like, I I don't feel anything. And he tries to think like how many people died. He's like, "I, I can't understand that number. Of so many billions dying and he tries to reduce it to something that he can comprehend and therefore feel something about and like one of the things he comes to is like they're not gonna be any more there's not gonna be any more dollars in the world <laughs> passing around i can comprehend money right they so, like i can feel something about that but you know, like and then and my family's gone i can feel something about that but Moving to the idea of England being gone, I can't comprehend
0: which which i think is i mean, it's getting to a real concept like it, yeah. in, within all the absurdity here um that is what makes the book delightful like he's he's dealing with something that's real about how we're able to comprehend events um like the the personal is tragic, but when it gets so big it like we we can like emote some but it it doesn't feel it doesn't hit as close to home when it's or, when and the it's, numbers are too big or too abstract
1: well or that you're talking about people but you're just reporting them as numbers you can't view them as people you can't view right. them as part of humanity it's just a number
0: yeah and i think there's several instances in the book where suddenly it's it's like dealing with something real uh and and then there'll be like the absurd twist that just pulls your attention away you know to the next thing yeah um, which I, I think which would make rereading uh, the text maybe more rewarding. Um, where the first time through, you just because of how we're so trained for novel reading, you, you want to know what, what happens next, like what is the plot? And I think a reread or a relisten, you, you might be able to drill down on some of those other moments a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, next time I go through this, uh, I'll t- pay more attention to Trillian because she brings up that uh, she recognizes the coordinates for Earth and then it's told Erskine, but it would don't, at least I didn't pick up a lot on her reaction mm-hmm. uh, to that news here. And there's probably more going on there than I've realized.
0: Right. Um, I I think so much of the joy in this, in this book is, isn't just from like the absurdity of the plot It is from the way that uh, Douglas Adams is able to present the information. So I, I just did a quick Google and I found a list of the 42 best lines from Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide in the Galaxy. Of and course. I'm just I'm just scrolling through a couple of these, and um, like one of these is the ships hung in the sky in much the same way that Maybe bricks a brick don't. Yes, that bricks don't. <laughs> Which like it, it gives you a twist in the middle of the sentence. Is <laughs> like there's just something but, so amazing about building up that uh, analogy and, and then like breaking it all down so quickly.
1: Yeah. Well, we haven't brought up one of the most. Uh, Famous aspects of the story that the cover of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Go on. Do you remember what it says?
0: I, d- I don't. I don't.
1: In big, friendly letters, it says, "Don't panic."
0: Oh, right, right, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that is advice that Ford keeps giving Arthur: it's "Like you're panicking. Stop panicking.
0: Yeah, just don't panic.
1: <laughs> yeah, keep reading the book. You don't panic." <laughs>
0: Um another line, uh, just uh, I'm just picking out some of the good ones from the list of forty two. Uh, A common mistake that people make when trying to design something completely foolproof is to underestimate the ingenuity of complete fools. That's getting at both like there's commentary about fools there and, and like the user issues, but also like the absurdity of design and and um particularly like in the in the 70s, like like mass mass production and and what is gonna be made and how everything's gonna be uh, you know the best version of x, y, or z. I, I think that the barb there actually lands both ways.
1: <laughs> well, and uh, The thing for me is com- uh, computer design now. Well, more uh, website design now where you know that they worked hard to make this intuitive that you should be able to just go on and understand exactly where you're supposed to go. And I look at it I'm like, this is so confusing. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, like, like everything is uh i i think steve jobs made a big push for this right where everything was just going to be intuitive and and how you look at it and sometimes when it's when you're just not getting it it's just so infuriating
1: or i'm sorry but the apple podcast design right now where you have to go through so many menus to get to play or to order the podcast whatever you want to listen to instead of just having everything on one Mm -hmm. level
0: yes um and then an, another quote here the chances of finding out what's really going on in the universe are so remote the only thing to do is hang the sense of it and keep yourself occupied um where uh like the this whole book is really about like those big questions finding out that's what's great. going on in the universe that's what's what this is all like hinging on why the you know why it's so terrible for the mice that the earth was destroyed is the earth was a computer that was meant to give the question that makes the answer make sense and we were finally going to understand everything and uh, it's kind of like no. You know, don't worry about those big questions of religion and philosophy and academia. Just carry on
1: with your life. <laughs> just yeah, it's a, it's a, keep going. It doesn't have to be about why we are here. Yeah, it's what are you doing? Not even with your life, but like what are you doing tomorrow? That's bad. That matters more than why are we here? To mm-hmm. some people,
0: yeah. Just go, go, go forward and be doing. Uh, and mm-hmm. and you know that gives your life meaning, not the forty two. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Someday we'll know what that means. <laughs> what the question is.
0: Do, in the, I have not read the sequels ever. I've read, I have th- read this is my I think my third time with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Does the and the question ever get revealed?
1: I don't recall, so probably not. Yeah. People on the internet are screaming at us that, that <laughs> about <laughs> our <laughs> lack of knowledge. Right.
0: <laughs> oh, the final quote on uh on this list of forty two quotes. Do you want to guess what it is?
1: uh i'm gonna say it's not don't panic it I is in fact that.
0: don't panic that is the final <clears throat> quote of the 42
1: <laughs> well that's a you know generally good advice about life the universe and everything
0: right yeah don't panic and uh what, what was it about you know find something to do or go occupy yourself <laughs> there, <laughs> yeah. there you go <laughs> and now i can already tell you because i am seeing it i'm going to be getting ads with uh Things like forty-two said deep thought with infinite majesty and calm as as uh, like printouts or, or you know art prints for your for your walls, uh, or forty-two is just a period is one art print I'm already seeing an ad for because I've gone onto the site, uh, and then various versions of don't panic with bath towels because the bath towel is uh, uh, something that comes up in the story.
1: It is the most useful tool for a hitchhiker,
0: which I, my understanding is that is actually something that was said in the Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe. <laughs> was was oh. praising the bath towel because it could be used as a pillow, uh, or it could be used with its actually design function, or it could be used as a blanket, or you know, like all the it listed yeah. all the things the bath towel could be used for. <laughs> and that's why yeah. uh Douglas Adams borrowed that for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
1: I can believe that.
0: Well, John, this uh, classic of absurd comedic science fiction uh, is is just a delight to read. Do you have any final thoughts about it before we wrap up this episode?
1: I believe our sister and former guest Kate, her favorite number is 42. And that was before she even knew about the book.
0: I, I, I did not know that bit of trivia about our sister. I feel so ill-informed about my family at this moment.
1: <laughs> and I could be completely off base and she will yell at me later.
0: <laughs> um, well, one other thing I want to say about this. It is a very quick read. Like I said, this was probably my third time through. Uh, it's it's not a major investment of time. So if you're looking for something that's just going to bring a smile to your face and then maybe give you some, some stuff to think about, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a good choice. Um, I'm trying to remember how long the audio book was. It was definitely less than 10 hours. I can't remember. It was
1: five discs and they were a little over an hour each. So six hours. Okay.
0: I did it through the Libby uh, website, the library uh, one. I want to say it was, it was maybe six hours. That sounds about it.
1: It's going to be somewhere around there. There were like hour 15 on each Mm disk
0: All right, well, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to The Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. Please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English who designed our logo and Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or us on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at naderowski, And our producer, Andrew, is at this minute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long.
1: And I think I just had a good thought. Uh what what is it? We haven't stopped recording. With uh with Marvin. And like you're talking about how all the characters have these depressing aspects to them that they're and Marvin's given into the the depression, so he's the illustration for them of why they shouldn't give in to depression, or you'll end <laughs> up like him.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, and they're all annoyed by him. Like they, they hate yeah. having Marvin around. Alright, well, Andrew, maybe he'll just keep the outro out to here. <laughs> <laughs>